Hi, I'm Chris Alfalt, Deputy Editor of Film and TV Craft at IndieWire, and welcome to Deep Dive, where we not only talk to a director or showrunner about their craft or process, we talk to a whole creative team to lift the hood on an exceptional piece of filmmaking. And for our inaugural episode, we've partnered with HBO to break down one of the most formally bold episodes of TV I've ever seen, this extraordinary being, Episode 6 of Watchmen. Congratulations. What's your name, officer? William Reeves, sir, and known as my Lieutenant Battle. I joined the force because of you. Sorry to hear that. Beware the Cyclops. Series creator Damon Lindelof's series is not a remake of the original groundbreaking graphic novel, nor is it necessarily even what I would consider a remix. In fact, as you'll soon learn, the original kernel of the limited series was a question, which, when answered by screenwriter Cord Jefferson, turned into the story behind the episode we're talking about today. This is Damon Lindelof. Like one of the very first ideas that I had, maybe even predating me saying yes to Watchmen. In fact, it, in, in my recollection, it's, it's the reason that I said yes, was is there a way to take the existing canon and do an aggressive piece of retcon that basically I knew was in defiance of the wishes or the planned intentions of its original writer, and that's Alan Moore, of course, and I know that it was not his plan because we spoke to Dave Gibbons about our plan, and Dave, and Dave said, that's fantastic. That is not at all what, what we were thinking. But uh, but th this idea that Hooded Justice, who is a, a fairly obscure character from the original Watchmen in terms of the amount of time and energy that the story puts into him, but he's very critical because he's the alpha. He's the first costumed adventurer. And because his identity was never revealed, there was, in the ancillary materials of Watchmen, there was some suggestion that he may have been this circus strongman, Rolf Mueller. But for three decades, I have basically lived with the mystery of who is Hooded Justice. And so when first offered an opportunity to crack Watchmen, I think the idea of like, let's just start with the it's hubris to try to do Watchmen, but let's double down on the hubris and say, what if I were to reveal the identity of, of Hooded Justice in the process? And let's start with what my own personal theories are as to who he is and why. At the time, I was reading everything that ta Coates had ever written. And a big sort of unifying theme of all of ta Coates's writing is about the erasure of, of history or the, or the whitewashing of it or the reframing of it, um, the co-opting, the appropriation. And since appropriation was already a meta theme of me doing Watchmen, I'm appropriating someone else's writing, it sort of felt like, is there a way that superheroing itself, costumed adventuring itself was appropriated? And and so the idea that Hooded Justice was a black man who was forced to hide his racial identity just in order to survive. And also, culturally, no one would make a black man into a hero in the late 1930s, early 1940s. That idea really took hold. And one of the first people that I pitched it to was Cord Jefferson. I asked him what he knew about Watchmen, and then I pitched him this idea, and he was intrigued by it and also concerned. I could tell that he was concerned. And I was like, this is exactly the right guy, because anyone who says that this idea is not concerning is insane. Damon started day one saying that he wanted Hooded Justice to be black. We started there and then worked backwards from that. There wasn't really any backstory to Will yet. There was no understanding that what happened, that the, that the Tulsa massacre would be basically the origin story for Hooded Justice. It was just, I want Hooded Justice to be a black man. And then we sort of did the job of world building around that central idea. 
particularly the idea of some parts of Hooded Justice's costume were very emblematic of racial inequity and racial injustice, the noose, the Klan-esque hood. And so one of the first questions that I asked when we all came together in the writer's room, everybody was already on board with this idea, but now we have to start to build his origin story. And so I said, your homework is, how did he become Hooded Justice? Jefferson would come back to the writer's room the next day with a perfect backstory, weaving the noose, hood, and themes of Tanahashi Coates' writing that inspired Lindelof to tackle the story in the first place. The origin story of how Will Reeves, a young black cop in Harlem 1938, would become Hooded Justice is the subject of episode six. Over the last few weeks, I've interviewed a dozen people, all of whom, not surprisingly, have been nominated for Emmys for their work on this specific episode about how it came together, starting with the ideas behind the script Lindelof would write with Jefferson. I think that for some people that seemed like a radical idea, that the first superhero ever would be a black man from Oklahoma. But the more that I started thinking about it and thinking about the, the superheroes that we have in our real world, the more it made sense to me that that you would have somebody whose origin story was, was some sort of racial violence. Because I think when you're thinking of superheroes who are vigilantes and they're looking for extra judicial justice for some reason, it makes sense that that's a person of color in the 1930s. I would say that when it comes to finding um, justice in a world of injustices, people who look like Clark Kent had a much easier time finding justice than people who looked like Will Reeves, our character. So it made sense to me that the first person to put on a mask and a cape and go out and fight crime because they're unable to find justice anywhere else would be a person like Will Reeves. You know, the themes of the episode, I think, are near and dear to my heart. The themes of generational trauma. To explore the theme of generational trauma and how the brutal racial injustices of the past haunt our world today, the writer's room came up with a helpful story device that frames episode six, a fictional drug called nostalgia. Angela, you're not supposed to take someone else's nostalgia. That's very bad. Is it starting? Old man Will Reeves, played in the present by Lou Gossett Jr., has bottled up his memories in the now illegal drug, which his granddaughter Angela, the hero of the series played by Regina King, swallows whole. This isn't going to be a traditional flashback, but a drug trip of sorts that gave the Watchmen team an exciting piece of storytelling freedom. And because Angela is, in many ways, a captive audience, she's literally inside her grandfather's body, and she is watching the memories that he has specifically curated for her to the specific end of, I need you to feel what I felt. I need you to know why I became Hooded Justice, and, and that will help you understand why you are the way you are, why you decided to become a cop, why you spray paint a black strip over your eyes, why you feel like the badge means something, even though the world is telling you that it doesn't, or at the very least, people with badges um, uh, should be feared as much as respected. We wanted it to feel like you were seeing a ticking time bomb. We wanted it to feel like you were watching a bomb getting ready to go off, and, and you were seeing a man who was doing his best to do the right thing, but was also having to wear multiple masks, both literally and figuratively in order to do so. And what we wanted the audience to understand and see the slow erosion of what that does, of what wearing a mask does to a human being and what, what lying to everybody in your life actually does to you and what suppressing anger does to a person. And we, we sort of wanted to make sure that it was clear that people understood what this was doing to Will over the course of the episode, despite the fact that we didn't have a lot of time to explain what was happening. We wanted to make sure that the scenes that we did use were powerful enough to let you know that like, oh, this is a person who is headed for a cliff. 
Director Stephen Williams saw clearly how to visually capture what Will was experiencing and how we were experiencing it through Angela's nostalgia trip. Before they'd even write the scripts, Lindelof would share episode outlines with Williams and Nicole Cassell, the two directing producers prepping the series. And Williams instantly saw this episode as a cascade of images. Our intention, and certainly my intention throughout, was to reduce as much as possible any opportunity for the audience to experience dist any distance between itself and the events that were befalling our characters. And uh, long takes felt like you were going to be committed to the point of view of the character of Will Reeves. These are curated memories, um, but strung together in a coherent sequence. And it felt to me like the best way to render the sensation or the experience of memories was in a was to create a visual landscape that felt fluid, unbroken, continuous, seamless. Because when I reflect on my own experience of memories, that's what they feel like. There are very little demarcations between scenes in my head, haha, or uh, in my imagining. Um, and it, you what what you're left with at the end of you know, um, an immersion in the experience of memory is an overall kind of impression of a complete experience, not necessarily segmented into discrete portions, but one stream of consciousness. When Stephen first presented the idea, he just said Birdman. And I think that like my understanding of what he meant was, yes, Birdman is constructed as a continuous and uninterrupted take or shot. But more importantly, there's a subjective intensity to Birdman, like a stress because there are no cuts. There's an unrelenting sort of quality to, I can't even go to the bathroom if I want to because this movie has got me by the lapels and it's holding me close. So the storytelling itself and the way in which the story is told requires like kind of an in your face intensity. And more importantly, the swaps. I think that the idea of when are we going to remind the audience that in fact this is Angela's experience and not just Will's. But there were multiple times along the way that I was like, should this just be Regina the whole way? Should, should we even have an avatar for Will that ended up being the incredible Giovanna Depo? But, but I was sort of like, should we just quantum leap it in terms of the audience is only seeing it as her? And I think both Cord and Steven felt very strongly that we should see Will. And we should we should remind them that it's Angela's journey, but it it can't be a gimmick. Finding those moments where we where Angela substitutes in for Will, which are mostly almost entirely done as in camera, so the camera's moving off of a Javon and swinging back on, and there's Regina, and then they and then we're swapping them back out again. The actors are literally just running and and jumping into seats, um, and and in that carefully choreographed moment where the camera is not on them. With these hot swaps of actors in the middle of the scene and the shifting point of view nature of the nostalgia trip, one of the films Lindelof referenced with his creative team was Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. That blender of experiences and timelines, that ability to seamlessly move in and out of dreamscapes would be part of the language of this episode and was baked into its original conception. Here again is screenwriter Cord Jefferson. I think the thing that we had on our side, because it is a lot of story to pack into an hour, was that it was a drug trip, essentially. Like you were watching a drug trip and so the sort of 
standard conventions of narrative that you need to bring you from one scene to the next, you can kind of abandon those a little bit because you you were telling the audience from the beginning, they're going with you on a hallucination, essentially. We did that knowing it was going to be a big swing and knowing that it may be wild and a total mess if it's not executed properly. Mm -hmm. But when we were done with the script, I you know, looked at Damon and said, this is, this is crazy. And, and, and uh, like, there's no way to look at what, what happens in that, in that episode on the page and not think it's, it's insane. The drug trip aspect did give Williams permission to have these long roving cameras that shifted in and out of point of view in surreal transitions where a door in the middle of the street fluidly led to the next scene. But it could have devolved, as Jefferson says, into a total mess. The graphic matching, the timing, the movement it would all need to be like clockwork. This episode is a miracle in so many ways, just because it required a tremendous amount of pre-production and thought. If ever there was an episode that you couldn't just show up on the day and figure it out as you went, it was this episode. The level of careful planning and choreography required eventually led the episode cinematographer Greg Mendelton to suggest to Williams a level of pre-planning unheard of for an episode of television. So we did go through this elaborate rehearsal process of trying to basically pre-visualize the entire episode. So I pitched that to Steve and was like, well, this is something I've been wanting to do for a while and other. And we do it occasionally for certain sequences like action scenes or stunt scenes. And, you know, I pitched we should just get our get our two stand-ins, go to every location once we sort of picked it out. And, you know, using like an Artemis Director Viewfinder app on my phone kind of thing and and try a bunch of different choreographies to see if we can what how we can move the camera and how we can use move our stand-ins around who had their, you know, their off book with their with their lines mm-hmm. uh, and figure out what shots sort of felt right. And then you can actually look at them and say, does that feel right? Because once we we're not going to be able to shoot a lot of versions of things, a lot of different, you know, edits. We're going to have to really decide what the shot was going to be, how we'd choreograph all of the action within the scene with for the shot, what could be off camera, what couldn't be. And then we could also add those together, just, just, just stitch them all in a row in the office and sort of preset, okay, does that feel right? And then, okay, this is too long or this feels too short or maybe we can put a cut in here and, and just work all that before. Because once we did all that, I have to then technically design it. Like, is this going to be a crane steady cam, or, you know, a handle to a gimbal, or we'll pass the camera from one operator to another, things like that. They would have to figure out how to do it. For obvious reasons, the production design and visual effects departments became a vital part of Williams and Middleton's pre-planning. If they are going to convert 2019 making Georgia into 1938 Harlem, they need to know what Williams' roving and revolving camera was pointed at and when. Though ironically, for a show attempting to not cut, it was the inclusion of the editor in the pre-planning that became a vital part of this pre-production feedback loop. I had a lot of trepidation as an editor, you know, <laughs> with the whole concept, with mm-hmm. not having coverage. Um, but after that kind of initial period of, of thinking about it, I... You know, I thought that it was a great idea and it really could give this episode the gravitas that it needed. That was Anna Hogger, editor of the episode, who helped Williams and Middleton figure out when an actor could be off camera and when it was vital to see the reaction. But most importantly, how the two could shoot scenes in a way that stayed true to Williams' long take vision, but still maintain options in post production. It was great that he involved me in that. And I, I thought in certain aspects, it was essential to kind of have my take on that. And we did talk a lot about sometimes he would do 26 takes of of the same camera move. And so we had discussions about maybe mixing it up a little within the takes and maybe have in a couple takes, maybe the camera's in a different position, just so I would have some options going through it and we would have options to play with. Damon and I spent a lot of time going through 
every single take to see if there was something that we needed to do, if there was something that was exceptional in like take number one, and then something else that was exceptional later on in like take 22. Is there a way that we can combine those two takes and and really just give the stellar performance and choreography and camera movement that was needed? And sometimes we would do that. Sometimes we would, you know, find a, a moment of a flashback that we could put in and then change to another take. Or we would find like a place we could make a hidden cut in a, in a pan. Yeah. There's a couple pans there, which I imagine you can kind of stitch together, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which were, you know, Stephen and I talked about that initially in pre-production of are there places that we can have those pans where we could potentially put cuts if we needed to. And then obviously Anna and I discovered in the editing room that there were some instances where we wanted to change takes. So basically like, oh my God, the first part of take three is amazing uh, up until about the 45th second. And then these beautiful things happen in take eight. So how can we create an artificial cut? And the answer was to use material from Tulsa 21, which was kind of flooding in and out of, of Will's subjective memory anyway. The idea that the vividness of his experience as a young boy kept bleeding into these black and white memories that Tulsa 21 kept wanting to invade. The Watchmen pilot opens with the 1920 massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it's in this episode six, we learn that the little boy boy we saw escape after being stowed away by his parents before they're murdered is Will Reeves. My memory is that the 1921 Tulsa massacre and young Will Reeves being the baby who lives. You know, there's there's this grand tradition, whether it's Moses, Superman, this baby gets put in the vessel that goes down the Nile or in the spaceship that heads from Krypton to Earth. We wanted to do that story with young Will Reeves, and that was going to be Tulsa 21. Krypton was Tulsa. That past is vital to the story of why he becomes Hooded Justice, and it was something the filmmaking team was determined to keep front and center in this episode. The haunting images of Tulsa would not only appear in flashback, but in the frame with Will, and in color juxtaposed to the black and white photography. Here's screenwriter Cord Jefferson, followed by director Stephen Williams, talking about the thought process of these colored Tulsa flashbacks. We were discussing ways in which to incorporate those ghosts of the past, and there was discussion of flashbacks and, and things like that, but then we, we just thought it would be much more interesting and visceral to actually just put those memories right there in the present with Will throughout the course of his life and just show that, that he is being haunted by these things the way that we're all haunted by our own personal demons and traumas, the way that we can all just let those things go, despite the fact that they may have happened decades before. Those little vignettes are in color, again, because they're not intended to be part of the curated experience. They are the intrusion of other traumatic memories that are buried at a deeper level within Will Reeves' consciousness. And so when they intrude, they intrude with a different kind of visual vocabulary than the curated memories. These vivid pops of color tied to the traumatic experiences Will can't keep buried in his black and white present emerge in just the second scene of the flashback when Will and June have drinks at the club. Because you are an angry, angry man, William Reeves. I'm not angry. It's okay. Most of us are. Sound, like color, is a key tool in accessing the storm brewing inside Will. Here's supervising sound editor Brad North. That was the very first thing we cut. The very first thing we mixed was, was Tulsa. So that had to be brutal and it had to be overwhelming. We had to get that right. And then the scene turns and we see a flashback. And then when we come back, we don't hear the club anymore, right? We only hear 
them talking. We only hear spaced out stuff. So that changes the the whole scene. That was kind of a, a thing kind of throughout the whole episode. We do go back to, to that well because it does change him. That's what leads him to become who he is. It was difficult because of the oneer, because it was one shot and we have a whole camera crew walking around and they're having this delicate moment. We didn't want to hear the crew for one thing. Mm-hmm. And then when we go to the flashback and then we come back and it's just them, it had to be super quiet, mm-hmm. super intimate. So, you know, all the ruckus behind it is all gone. It's just them talking and some other stuff just kind of spaced out. When I interviewed re-recording mixer Joe DeAngelis, he had just finished working on another HBO series set in the 1930s, Perry Mason, which he brought up as a sharp contrast to the sound work being done in this episode. Whereas Mason leaned on a layered soundscape full of period-accurate sound effects to ground the audience in a real space and time, this episode of Watchmen let the black and white photography and music do the heavy lifting of establishing its period setting. The sound design was more about Will's headspace, not unlike what Williams was doing with the camera. Here again is director Stephen Williams, followed by re-recording mixer Jody Angelis. In many ways, it's analogous to what we were trying to do visually, which is to say, restrict within the parameters of the frame and present only the things that we wanted to present within the frame and to exclude things from the frame that we wanted to exclude until it became most impactful to include those things. And the same is true with the soundscape. Oftentimes, the important portion of the discussion is not so much about what exists within the the soundscape, but what has been deliberately left out until it becomes most judicious, most effective, and most impactful to include those sound elements. And we were very conscious of trying to make those kinds of decisions throughout the whole process. Score is making the period just because of the tone of the music and what we're seeing. That tells 99% of it right there. We don't have to build 1930 LA or car horns and this and that. It's kind of music totally, I mean, it sets the mood. It lets you know where you are immediately. You hear the music, it's in black and white. You're like, okay, I get it. I know where I'm at. You don't need to hear all that other stuff. Anna and Steven basically tempt the original cut of episode six with like a lot of Birdman music. And the reason that it, it worked was that the intensity of the drums, the jazz improvisational feel of that score felt like it was of the period, you know, the late 30s, uh, 40s. But then, of course, it's Birdman, like you can't use it. And to go to Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and say, we just want you to do Birdman. No, like. That, 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 that's not what they do. <laughs> Hi, I'm Trent Reznor, composer of Watchmen. We were in dialogue with Damon and he, he said, I need something that's percussive that just feels like momentum. I don't want it to be too musical or melodic. Birdman had come up as a reference point and which we both loved the score that Antonio did for that and a world of respect for him. So it was, I'd say, inspired by as a starting point, just see what would happen, minus the fact that he's a great drummer and I'm not. (laughs) uh, It it was fun to experiment around. And once we saw some of the noodling against picture, it really felt like it worked and allowed us to have some of those accent points. And I think it, 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 uh, it managed to kind of be the thread that kept that episode through, through those sections feel tethered in, in an interesting way that made it also feel very different than the rest of the show, which, which mm-hmm. was, was the intention all along. Good work, Officer Reeves.
the boom, 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 and then a door pops, closes, or opens, and we're in another scene. Those transitions were tricky, getting the timings right. I mean, at least, you know, Trenton Atticus, I mean, the rhythm building, you know, and then the door pop or, or the reverse tape effect. Those reverbs across cuts, you know, songs, when he comes out after the Cyclops thing in the uh, police station and the doors pop open, pop, and then we have that big score piece come in, their piece. It was making all these transitions unique and different. And I think that's one of the special things about this episode. It's just, you know, where's it, where am I going next? The drumming captured the intensity and momentum of when Will was starting to boil up inside, culminating with this first act of vigilante violence, which you just heard. But when Lindelof came in after William's director cut was temped to the Birdman drumming, he started to do what he always does, an experiment with licensable music. One thing that separates Lindelof from other TV creators is his tonal range. Reznor, a fan of The Leftovers before he'd ever worked with the Watchmen creator, commented on how impressed he was by the way that needle drops in that series were able to carry so much story. Yet what Lindelof and music supervisor Liza Richardson did in this episode, creating an entire new layer, a beautiful haunting layer of melodic period music, might be their best work yet together. It's almost impossible to imagine this episode without this music. And yet, at the same time, it must have been hard to imagine how this beautiful melodic music would work juxtaposed to such horrific material. Here again is editor Anna Hauger. Damon had the idea at a certain point to kind of go against the tone of the scenes with the songs that he was choosing. He wanted period pieces that didn't necessarily go with like the angst and the kind of tragedy of what was happening on screen. And so he and I requested a, a bunch of pieces from Liza that were period specific and, and the Inkspot songs came up in one of the big lists of songs that she sent us. and. You know, it was kind of serendipitous with all of them. We would put them in and there were certain lyrics or certain beats that would hit with what we'd already edited. And it was magical. And they just kind of, from the minute we put them in, we knew that they were right. Hi, I'm Liza Richardson. I'm the music supervisor. It started with a pop quiz from Damon. So he was thinking it should be instrumental songs or mostly, you know, songs with, with lyrics um, from the 40s and 50s. He was a little bit like, it didn't have to be rigidly from a specific year. And then he gave me a couple themes, like songs about time, nostalgia, songs about remembering and forgetting and the concept of time and forever. Liza basically found a number of Ink Spots songs that I just felt were like, they were evocative of the period. The Ink Spots are uh, African-American artists and they're called the Ink Spots. So there's already kind of like a Rorschachy, you know, it feels like it was written just for Watchmen. And then when you listen lyrically to, you know, a song like I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire or My Echo, My Shadow and Me, you lay those on top of the scenes and it feels like we wrote those scenes with that music in mind. That's when the marriage sort of clicks in. I loved how We Three worked, the song We mm -hmm. Three, My Echo, My Shadow, and Me, because in that scene, it's a, that big montage where, you know, he's got this double life, you know, he's, or triple life, and he's struggling with his identity because he's uh, 
<laughs> being tortured or persecuted, but he's also, uh, you know, just trying to figure out who he is. So it's like, I love the way that song works with the the lyrics, my echo, my shadow, and me. And in that big montage, that's, that's I think, a great use. I don't want to set the world on fire. If you had asked Cord and I when we wrote the script, do you think that there's going to be music playing over the scene where Hooded Justice goes to Fred's supermarket and and gets into this sort of epic knockdown drag out fight with the KKK guys in the back? We would say no. That maybe Trent and Atticus will do some score, but it's probably going to play best dry. That's one of those cases where the feel of the music is actually playing against the violence, and they're combining to make this sort of unexpected unexpected combo, but you just don't know it until you get into the editing room and you try it. And so once I, I, I gave Anna that song and said, let's just, just let it keep playing. Let it play. We'll start it over the scene between Will and June when we see the Hooded Justice costume there on the mannequin, but then we'll pivot to him on the rooftop. There was a version where we can stop the song right when he punches the guy who answers the door, but well, let's just keep it going all the way until Fred tries to shoot him with the shotgun. Uh, and it worked, it just played. It, 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 again, it, it feels like a, it's a happy accident. It, it feels like all of that Ink Spots music was like just sort of tailor-made for this episode. What the fuck are you supposed to be? Re-recording mixer, Jody Angelus. It was interesting working with that style of music. I haven't done it before, and you know, really, it 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 was a bit of work to try to get it to sit. But I think we found it. Having punching and (laughs) someone getting brutally beaten to those that type of music is is new. I've never experienced that before, and which was unique in this episode. And that was Anna. I mean, she totally set the tone. I was blown away when I saw the Avid track. One of the songs on that Avid track was Doris Days Till the End of Time, which Lindelof and Hauger had cut against the pivotal scene where Will is kidnapped and lynched by his fellow officers. The song's breezy, brassy, big band, long intro, the way Day sang the nostalgic lyrics. By all accounts, it was one of those truly magical moments of song and scene elevating each other. Once seeing the two together, everyone we talked to said the same thing. It was hard to imagine this pivotal moment of Hooded Justice's origin story without that song. It was perfect, and that's when HBO first watched the episode, that's what we, we had in there. And so Liza came back and said that we weren't going to be able to clear it. And and sometimes Liza says, you can't clear it, and then I write a letter, essentially begging and explaining why it's the perfect needle drop. I tried that, and it, it just didn't work. They were like, you're not going to get that song. And now the question just basically became, can we find a different song? And so Liza provided us with 12 backups, and some of them were fine, but but I was just so enamored uh, of the original. And at a certain point, I think it was Liza, basically said like, maybe Trent and Atticus could just write a song. And I was like, I don't know, like that's a big ask. But if anyone can do it, it's those guys. The big ask, hey, we, which, which specifically is, we've meticulously shot this scene um, and we had been temping in a Doris Day piece where it really worked with the picture and it worked because it had a haunting juxtaposition of this beautiful song over this horrific imagery of a lynching and, and the pursuit of, of police by police. 
and they won't license us the music. In fact, the publisher is so offended by the scene, he said, we won't, love, we won't license any music we have access to. <laughs> yeah. Do you think you guys could write something that could work for the scene? But it has to feel as though it's from 1940 and it needs to be in that mode, you know, where, where it's imperceptible that it's, it's not. Can you, can you pull that off? And by the way, we need it by next weekend. <laughs> by the time I went to them, all the sands had basically run down the hourglass. <laughs> I think going to them and saying, we have two months to do this. Maybe it wouldn't have worked as well, but I think that the fact that the kind of the garage door was closing and you had to kind of like scoot under it like Lube Man created this sort of level of like, we've used up all of our lead time to do this. By then, Trent and Atticus had seen the episode and they understood, I think, what it was going to be. And then I think within 24 hours of me asking them if they wanted to take a shot at it, Trent sent me the lyrics. It felt it felt like magic. We, we were deep in that feeling of momentum, feeling confident that we can keep up and feeling inspired by the team and dreading but welcoming those challenges. Could we do this? I don't know. Let's let's fucking find out and see if we can, you know. And that I think made its way into how we could pull that song off in a week because we, we were feeling confident. We didn't want to let the team down. We thought, man, it'd be great if we could pull this rabbit out of a hat, you know, because it very specifically had to perform these certain functions. Now, we had a roadmap of a song tempt in there that, that kind of spelled out, okay, it needs to be kind of in this world. So we, we stole the tempo from that song, for example, because the cuts all happened. But then really it was about, let's forget about all that initially and just think about a song. And it was me sitting at the piano and tossing melodies around and starting with lyrics that, you know, there isn't any lyrics in Watchmen or scoring for the most part. So it was a chance to kind of think about what could work you know, what, what would feel juxtaposed against that scene lyrically? What could kind of start to feel like an innocent or a song of longing and romance and but could be have a real sinister aftertaste, it's particularly when viewed against, you know, that imagery. When the call went into Damon was, I think we have the core of a song that I think is pretty could be pretty strong here. What do you mm -hmm. think? Uh, is it worth pursuing? And it was immediately, fuck yes, it's worth pursuing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, when I told even my wife that, when the episode aired, I was like, Trent Atticus wrote this song. And she was like, what? I don't understand. And I said, yeah. that song, that's them. And she's like, oh, so it's like a cover? I was like, no, they wrote it. It sounds like it was recorded in, you know, 1940, but they did it. Um, they wrote the lyrics. They did the, the you know, the arrangements, the orchestrations. It's all them. There's no doubt the Watchmen team sweats the details. But it's interesting to consider why they went to such extremes to get the music perfect for this one scene. I mean, after all, Richardson had supplied alternatives that would have worked, just not as well. And to answer that question, it's first important to go back to the origin story of not only this episode, but of Hooded Justice and the series itself. How did he become Hooded Justice? There's things that we're married to in the canon that Hooded Justice's first appearance, the first time anybody saw him was he basically showed up in an alleyway and prevented a sexual assault from occurring. And then and then about a week or two later, he showed up at a supermarket and, and foiled a robbery there. These are the reported news items that we're married to. We have some wiggle room because the, because the news doesn't always get it right, but we have to solve for these two events. Damon's a big fan of homework and so Damon 
Damon had us all go home one night with pitches about how Hooded Justice would come to have the noose around his neck as part of his costume. And so I came in and pitched the lynching scene from the, the cops attempting to, that his fellow officers would attempt to lynch him for the non-crime of arresting a white man and that his cops would turn against him for doing that and trying to just go about doing his job. It's, it's an atypical origin story because he doesn't choose to become Hooded Justice. Hooded Justice is almost foisted upon him as a result of this assault. The success of the episode, and to some degree the series, is not simply that the audience understands that connection that Damon is talking about here, specifically that the violent assault propels Will, noose still around his neck, to become Hooded Justice in its immediate aftermath. We need to emotionally understand it. After the cops jump Will and knock him out, Reznor and Ross's haunting song follows Will as he's dragged to what he assumes will be his death. But the song isn't doing all the heavy lifting here. Rather, it's working in perfect concert with image and sound to bring us literally inside the hood with Will, mesh bag around the camera lens as we're hoisted up the tree. This is editor Anna Hauger, followed by re-recording mixer Jody Angelis. We had gone there with the Doris Day song of um, when Will gets kind of knocked out by the policeman, we start to go into reverb, and, and as it gets just unbearable, just this horrifying scene where we're in his point of view being hauled up the, up the tree, it just you get kind of more tinnitus and just painful sounds um, to, to make that even more agonizing. And so I think when Trent and Atticus were writing the song, they were kind of able to take that to an even higher degree with that type of thing and really underscore what Will was going through in that moment. We kind of go into a reverb space with the music, if you hear, you know, when, when he starts getting drug up to get Lynch, you'll start hearing a big reverb come across the music and we kind of wash everything out. And then we focus more on like his breathing and you know the POV of him getting the bag over his head and then you see the raising and you'll start to feel the music. It builds, there's actually a, a tonal thing in there that they put in and we kinda, we washed out the song into a, you know, a big reverb field and then we kind of built that tone as he's being raised up and you'll hear that tone come up come up come up and then it goes snap right at the top when they cut him so that's how we kind of built that it was breaths and you know the pov and the music kind of drifts away and then you hear this tone build as the intensities he goes up and then snap we go to silence and the fall and then you reveal uh her on the ground so there was a time in the cutting room where we didn't know what was going on with the music there. We knew the song leading up to it, but we didn't know what was happening. So we cut it with the idea of it all being design and breaths and stuff. So that kind of got us into a spot where we wanted to be there again with Will. He's got the hood on, it's from his perspective. So we, we brought him in to do some breaths and stuff along with his ADR. And we did an entire thing with him of breaths and efforts from them with him with the hood on all the way through the lynching, falling down. And then we'd go into Angela's breaths as she's, as she's recovering. And he did a whole thing. So we wanted to kind of play that and everything else gets all swimmy, right? So that's the way that we approached it going to the stage. 
And then we had this amazing music that continued on. And then that did its own thing, right? Everything kind of split off into its own thing. So we were able to do different things with the music, different things with the vocal. You can actually hear the vocal track starting to get a little swimmy and head spacey. So we took that idea from them and then we started tripping out all the the guys around him and keeping the breaths right here and then you know then we play the rope sounds we hear the gagging and the choking and then that was you know it all kind of melded together and because of the way that they delivered the music and the way that they wrote it we were able to kind of come in and out and and do like a handshake sort of thing. Williams actually shot the lynching scene, so we are literally seeing it through Will's eyes, deciding to make the long Warner pure point of view until Will is cut down from the tree. But it's the little details and decisions Middleton makes in how he shoots the scene that stops it from feeling mechanical. The cinematographer utilized a two-operator pulley system so the camera can mirror Will's panicked sense of looking around, racking focus as he's hoisted up the tree. Working with the costume department, the DP found just the right mesh material so the camera can faintly see through Will's hood while bringing in the car headlights so there's depth and we are able to see the racist cops below. Middleton even put a small air jet in the map box, so those breaths Brad North just described can be seen blowing the fabric the camera is looking through. You might not notice all these technical details watching the scene, I, I didn't, but like the sound and music, they are what gives Williams long takes that intense subjectivity the director initially envisioned for this episode. We wrote in that we wanted the camera to go up with Will as he was being lynched. So that was in the script. I think I was surprised at how much that scene would resonate with me, you know, about how terrified I would be and how sick to my stomach I would feel. That sort of just loneliness, the loneliness of being in that in that black bag over his head as the camera goes up with Will and sort of hearing Will struggle in there as he's sort of preparing himself to die this, this lonely, violent death. Despite the fact that I had written that scene and put all of those elements into the into the script, I was I was sort of taken aback at how much it, it impacted me when I watched it and, and how affecting I found it. At the end of the nostalgia trip, we return to the tree in the hanging scene. This time, though, it's a replay of older Will hanging Don Johnson's character from the pilot episode. As Angela starts piecing together the threads of her life with what she just learned by experiencing her grandfather's memories, the way it used to be also returns to the soundtrack. Here's composer Atticus Ross, who wrote the song with Reznor. One of the themes, really, that is not a musical theme, but a theme of the show that's being explored at that specific point in time, is this idea that trauma can be passed down generations. What we're really trying to do with the music there is move from really Will's history, as it were, as it pertains to Angela and her memories. So it feels intentionally psychedelic and disorientating. But at the same time, I think that there's an emotional weight that it carries, partly just from the pieces, but in the context of the picture and this idea. And really coming to the end of that episode, I think my my mind was... I think it's a mind-blowing episode, and I think that ending is as good as it could get. No Throws his hood back in fast reads. Trust. Minimum would be nothing. Put in justice. Angry. 
told someone creeps. You stay away from me and your son. Director Stephen Williams, followed by re-recording mixer Jody Angelis. In many ways, it's like a reprise, if you will, of all that she had experienced while she was under the influence of nostalgia, but coming at her in a very kind of erratic, chaotic, tumultuous, cascading manner. So he knew that that was going to be the energy and the tonality of that moment. But the actual calibration of what that mixture of images was going to look like was something that, you know, we discovered in the post process in editing. And again, it's uh, the, the, the fine tuning and balance of that is largely due to the brilliance of the aforementioned Anna, our editor. It was a difficult piece, that ending, coming out of nostalgia where Don Johnson hangs himself and we're starting to flash back through that whole thing. There was so much going on visually and sonically as well. It took us a while to comb through and find it. Luckily, Anna had the guide like I keep going back, she set the tone for all this. And it was like, okay. It was an interesting process of having all of these disparate characters on blue screen and how do I make it kind of very visceral and effective for all of these haunting ghostly figures coming to Angela and kind of bring her back into the present and uh, with June. But then the other thing is we had now shot episode seven and we had cast the grandma iteration of June who interacts with young Angela in, in Vietnam. So we were able to incorporate her into that final sequence. So the audience hasn't even met June as an old woman yet. So that'll become a payoff in the seventh episode. And we wanted June. That was like, I think the final piece of the puzzle that came in, which is what's gonna pull Angela out of the memory and into, um, you know, back into her body sitting at Lady True's place. And the answer was, oh, it should be June because June is the connective thread between Will. That's the woman that she loved. But it's actually Angela's grandma who she had this experience with when she was a little girl. And even though we haven't shown the audience that story yet, Angela knows who she is. And so to have this kind of like, ner like it was very Wizard of Ozzy. You know, you kind of want Auntie M you know, to kind of like say like, Dorothy, wake up. And so June was actually the connective emotional thread that we needed. But like, fortunately, we had the two weeks to kind of ideate on that before we actually had to shoot it. Because I imagine what you're building towards is that ultimate cut, right? The one to her in present day color sitting up, right? Yeah. And it's a, it's a mixture of, of sound and cuts and pacing and uh, and kind of having this cacophony lead you to that ultimate intake of breath that she has when she's in Lady True's room. I'm going to take you home now, honey. I think that we also wanted it to feel like this was somebody understanding. I think that Damon and I, and you know, the entire show wanted people to think about what nostalgia actually is. That sort of thinking about the good old days can feel very different for people of color and other minorities and, and, and women in this country. That the entire concept of nostalgia, which is what these pills were made for in the show, it, it's different for straight white men than it is for everybody else. That this idea of nostalgia and this idea of like the good old days in the past, if you actually sit down with it with a lot of with a lot of black people, it doesn't feel so good. And there's not a lot of great memories associated with that. There's, there's 
incredibly violent and and hurtful and painful memories for a lot of people of color when they sit when they sit down and think about their their history. There are so many ideas packed into this episode, and the series as a whole has incredibly perceptive nuance and yet searing things to say about race as it relates to history, culture, and yes, superheroes in the TV we watch. What I hope you got out of this deep dive is that what makes the series, and in particular this episode, so great is how those ideas are expressed in craft. These aren't just technical jobs. These are artists working at the top of their game to use cinematic form. So you and I have our own curated emotional journey with these ideas in this story. For an episode like this to work, you need so many brilliant minds kind of coming together. And, and at any one time, different people are taking the reins and steering the, the carriage. I want to thank HBO for partnering with us on this first episode of Deep Dive. And I want to thank you for listening. Deep Dive is a production of Penske Media Corporation and IndieWire. It was produced by IndieWire's creative producer, Leo Garcia, who did an incredible job pulling this all together. Hopefully he won't edit this out. We'll be back next week with Jesse Armstrong and crew breaking down the incredible season two finale of Succession. And one last programming note, as you can probably imagine, this podcast is only a portion of the amazing material we got from doing hours of interviews with Damon Lindelof and crew. And some of that material we'll be using in video essays that'll appear on IndieWire this week. So be on the lookout for that. Okay. See you next week.